So here's my question. What are you doing with the dash? And I don't mean the dash out the door. I don't mean the dash to the grocery store. I mean that dash that comes after the year of your birth and will be followed by the year of your death. That dash represents all of our lives. There are lots of dashes on either side of this building. In both graveyards, people who once worshipped here in this space are no more. What did they do with their dash? And now that they know so much more, what do they wish they had done with their dashes? How will we use ours? What are we building with our lives and in our lives? What are we seeking? One of the books I'm currently reading is Thomas Hardy's 1891 novel, Tess of the D'Urbervilles. And Tess is a very intelligent, though uneducated, country girl who finds a job as a dairymaid while also at the dairy farm is a young man who is very well educated and also very intelligent. And the young man can tell that Tess wants to learn more, and so he offers to teach her. And he asks, would you like to take up any course of study? History, for example. Tess responds, sometimes I feel I don't want to know anything more about it than I already know. The young man asks, why not? And Tess answers, because what's the use of learning that I am only one of a long row? Finding out that there is set down in some old book somebody just like me. And to know that I shall only act her part makes me sad. That's all. The best is not to remember that your nature and your past doings have been just like thousands and thousands. And that your coming life and doings will be like thousands and thousands. Tess doesn't see any significance but only sadness in being just like everyone else. And so she desires to use her dash in a different way, to do differently than those who have come before her or those who may come after her. And you know what? You and I often have that very same desire in our lives. We use that dash that God has given us attempting to be different, to carve out a unique identity for ourselves. And when we do that, we often waste the dash that God has given us. It's like deciding to watch a Netflix movie at eight o'clock. And at nine o'clock, you're still not watching a movie because you're still scrolling through trying to decide which movie you want to watch. And so it is with us. We waste our dash when we search for and seek for and scroll through an identity that God has not given to us. God has told us in his word how you and I ought to use our dash, how to make the most of it. We will do that in our own unique ways with the unique gifts that God has given to us. By the grace of God, people who come after us will do the same thing. But for right now, for this moment, you and I must embrace the identity given to us
by Jesus. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning as we return again to 1 Peter chapter 2. So I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. There should be a pew Bible, a Bible in the pew in front of you if you don't have one. When you found your place, I'm going to ask you to stand so we might hear read together the word of the living God. This is the word of the Lord. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rocket of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you... Our chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it leads and guides and directs our lives so that we do not waste them. We ask now that you would open your word to us through the power of your spirit. Transform us, we pray, so that we may live our lives in accordance to your word. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So our... Our identity is clear in these verses. You and I are like living stones, and we are being built into a spiritual house in which we will serve as holy priests, as royal priests. That's it. I want to spend the rest of our time this morning looking at two aspects of this identity. First is the fixedness. Of it, and the second is the function of it. So, the fixedness of it and the function of it. Let's consider first the fixedness of our identity of this dash. Look with me again, if you will, in verse 6. We read, Therefore, it stands in Scripture Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone. Chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. For it stands in Scripture. This word stand means to enclose on all sides, to surround, to encircle, to take hold of completely. So what is it that stands in Scripture? On all sides of Scripture. Surrounding all of Scripture, encircling all of Scripture, taking hold of all of Scripture is Christ, the chosen and the precious cornerstone. 
It reminds me of what's referred to as St. Patrick's breastplate prayer. Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit, and Christ when I stand. All of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, has as its center the revelation of Jesus Christ. In describing the beauty and the coherence of all of Scripture, the Westminster Confession, in chapter 15, writes of the heavenliness of the matter of Scripture, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts and the scope of the whole. The consent of all the parts and the scope of the whole. Scripture all fits together, works together, fixedly so. Dr. David Garner's professor of theology at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. And he writes that the Westminster Confession celebrates how the Bible fits together seamlessly, savingly, gloriously, like an orchestra where each instrument contributes to the whole masterpiece. The books of the Bible harmoniously resound with the gospel truth from Genesis to Revelation. God's message of redemption has always been by grace through faith. Scripture's beauty shines in part by its majestic, internal, gospel coherence, that each of its parts sweetly agrees and comes devoid of dissonance or contradiction. God never changes His mind, His message, or His purpose. Nor does He offer one means of salvation in the Old Testament and yet another means in the New. To do so would undermine the purpose, necessity, and value of the work of His Son, Jesus for sinners. You see, the point is that Scripture agrees with itself. The whole of it has one scope. It's fixed. It is not fluid. And in the same way, our identities as God's people is fixed. And while you and I can all be sympathetic with the feelings of tests, the reality is that each one of us is in a long row. And our new nature in Christ sets us about the very same task as those who had that same nature who came before us and those who will come after us. And so instead of being sad about that, sad that we're not unique, it should fill us with joy. Instead of trying to stand out in the crowd and carve out our own niche, we should instead embrace the one that God gives us. Because listen, it comes with God's blessing and God's abundance and God's peace because the plan for us and the purpose for us is fixed. We are a holy priesthood, according to verse 5, and a royal priesthood, according to verse 9, serving in the temple of God. This has always been the plan of God 
for the people he created. And so what we're going to turn to now as we continue is to look at our function as priests. I want you to follow along as we look now at this seamless harmony of God's Word and how it sweetly agrees and how it beautifully and convincingly leads you and me to understand how we ought to use that dash. So here we go. Are you ready? Are you ready? Sure. I like that answer. Why not? <laughs> Lunch isn't ready. All right. After God created the heavens and the earth, he, he created a special place on the earth for Adam and Eve. And he called that place Eden. Within Eden, God created this very special garden. And at the center of that garden was the tree of life. The description of the garden in Genesis 2 presents it as a divine sanctuary in the midst of all of creation. And after the sanctuary was ready, God created Adam and Eve and he placed them in it. Now listen. You living stones who are being built into a spiritual house. The tabernacle and later the temple is going to have the very same design as the garden. Follow along with this. The temple and tabernacle are to have a courtyard that surrounds them. That courtyard corresponds to the land of Eden. Passing through the courtyard, you would enter then into the holy place. That holy place corresponds to the garden. And then through the holy place was the holy of holies. The holiest place on all of earth because it was the dwelling place of the presence of God on earth. And so that corresponds to the tree of life. It was at the very center of the garden. Now, after God placed Adam and Eve in the garden, he told them this in Genesis 2, 15. He said, work it and keep it. Now, notice this, because we think work is a curse. It's not. God told them this before they had sinned. And so we know that work is not a curse. Work in God's sacred place was the holy activity for which God created human beings. Now listen to more harmony. The two words that God spoke to Adam and Eve, to work and keep, are the exact same words that's go that God is going to use to describe the work of the priests. Numbers chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. The priests shall keep guard over Aaron and over all the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister at the tabernacle. They shall guard, there's the second word, all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. So, listen, Adam and Eve were created to be like priests in the garden, keeping it 
and guarding it because God's presence was there. God's blessing was there. God's bounty was there. It was shalom. As priests, heaven and earth, heaven and earth came together through them. They represented God to creation and they represented creation to God. That was their sacred role because they and they alone were created in the image of God. Unlike other temples that would come to be, this garden temple of God had no carved or cast image to represent a God. No. Why? Because God said, let us make man in our own image. Adam and Eve bore the image of God in his divine garden place. And this is why God is so adamant about the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth because his image is already present in the people he created. Those who are created cannot possibly come up with a better image or a more effective one than what God has designed. And God confirmed that. When he took on flesh and he came to earth and he dwelled or he tabernacled among us to be God, physically present in the temple in human form. But we know what happened, don't we? In that story of the garden. Adam and Eve were not happy with what God had given to them and His blessings and His peace and His shalom. They thought they could find a better one of their own making and so they sinned. And in that moment, they forfeited their role as priests. And God cast them out of the garden, out of the sanctuary, back into the land of Eden and beyond. And God dramatically demonstrated all they had lost by putting the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned in every direction to block their way so that they could not re-enter this divine sanctuary in general and access the tree of life specifically. Now the rest of Scripture, the rest of Scripture, all of it, is what God has done to reopen access to Him and to allow us to reclaim the role that was forfeited by Adam and Eve. Come on, is that good news? And so we have to fast forward to Jesus, the great high priest, as Scripture calls Him, back to the time of His crucifixion, back to the moment that in the greatest act a priest could ever perform, he offered his own life as a sacrifice on the cross. He became sin for us. Back to the moment when he cried from the cross, it is finished, when he committed his spirit into the hands of his Father and breathed his last, at that moment, the curtain in the temple the curtain that blocked access to the center of the temple, the Holy of Holies, 
the curtain that had embroidered on it cherubim, just like the cherubim that guarded the Garden of Eden, that curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. Through Jesus, access to God is open. Is that good news? Because Jesus, who is life, the way, the truth, and the life, because he died on the tree, we no longer need the tree of life. Through Christ, we enter into the presence of God. And through Christ, we reclaim and are restored to that identity that Adam and Eve forfeited, holy priests, royal priests. Let me tell you, there cannot be any greater blessing for any one of us in this room than to live the life that God has created us to do. No more harmony for us, no more peace can be found. And then we continue. More harmony in Scripture. Are you following? I hope you are following. This, this all is so incredible to me. The mind of God. In the Old Testament, on the day that the temple that Solomon had built was dedicated, we read this. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. And when all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and they worshiped. Now, what happened on the day of Pentecost? The believers were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared on them and rested on each one of them. Look, fire came down from heaven, rested on the temple. The glory filled the temple. The Holy Spirit came down from heaven in the form of fire, in the shape of a tongue, and it rested on the disciples, and the whole house was filled. Clearly, God is following his fixed plan and saying that we, you and I, as believers in Christ, are the new dwelling place of God on earth. From the time of creation, we were made to be, created to be, holy, royal priests. That's our function in the world. So your dash and my dash should be all about what kind of priests are we being. Wherever God has placed us. How are we spirit-indwelled bearers of God's image representing God to this world? We have to constantly be asking ourselves that question. How are we representing God to the world? How are we bringing God's blessing to the world? How are the things of heaven coming to the world through us? And then how are we representing the world to God? Are we representing the world to God? Or are we casting the world off in complete disgust? 
by what we see. Forgetting that the way to them is open. Forgetting that Jesus ascended to heaven to take his seat, his high priestly seat at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And what is Jesus doing from that place? A very priestly thing. He's interceding for us, is he not? Our high priest is praying for us. And now we are his body, he says so, on this earth. The extension of him, earthly priests, are we interceding for the world? That is our priestly duty. Hebrews 13, more priestly language. Through Christ, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. That's a priestly duty. Praising our God. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. That's our priestly duty, to do good and to share what God has given to us. Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Offering up all of ourselves to the Lord as a sacrifice. That is our priestly function. It does not matter where God places you in this world. On any given day, in any given hour, you and I are to be holy and royal priests of our God in this world through the new life that we have in Christ and by the power of the Spirit. That is our dash. We don't need to look for a different identity. We don't need to attempt to set ourselves apart. We just need to be God's holy royal priests wherever He places us. That's the place for blessing for us, and it means blessing for the world, through us. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us boldly and fearlessly take up this role that you have given us, the role for which you created human beings in your image. You've redeemed us, restored us, renewed us, we pray that you would cause us to be your people, your priests in this world. For Jesus' sake, in whose name we pray, amen.